You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangalos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. With palliative and hospice care, there was no one-size-fits-all approach. How can we best tailor palliative and hospice care at long-term care facilities to fit each patient? Joining us to discuss palliative care in late-stage disease and hospice is Dr. Peter Wynn, professor in the Department of Family Medicine, Oklahoma University School of Medicine in Oklahoma City. Peter, thanks for joining the program. You're welcome. Thanks for offering me to come and speak to you today. Oh, we'll have a good time together. Now, let's talk about the common conditions in long-term care facilities that will require palliative or hospice care. And then I want you to talk about the difference between palliative and hospice care, if there is such. Well, I'd like to certainly give some statistics up front. We know that the average one-year mortality of residents in the long-term care beds in nursing facilities is between 25 to 35 percent. So that does mean that one in three or one in four patients that we take care of will die uh, every year. And so we certainly are having individuals, residents in the facilities who are often in the advanced stages of their illness, perhaps with the overall prognosis of only living three to four years. Again, we're talking about the long-term stay residents. Often they're in the facility because of late stages of dementia. They're no longer ambulatory to their disease process. We also see people with a failure to thrive where they're having a progressive weight loss, which could be due actually to many different uh, medical problems such as end-stage neurologic disease, Parkinson's disease, ALS. And we also see a lot of stroke patients who may suffer an acute stroke at the facility, and then we have to work with the family and decide whether we'll use artificial nutrition and hydration. Uh, also have some COPD patients, heart failure patients are very common. Ironically, we actually don't see, in my practice anyway, many patients with cancer. It seems that about 50% of cancer patients actually die in the hospital and 25 to 40% die at home. Now, as far as palliative care, with that kind of introduction, what I wanted to point out is that we should really integrate the principles of palliative care into caring for every resident in the facility, whether they're in their late stages of illness or whether they're going for curative treatments. It's certainly not an all-or-none phenomenon. Let's stay with that then. I want our audience to have a very good sense. We'll get to the different diseases in a minute, but let's stay with palliative and hospice, palliative or hospice. How do you want to go about this? Yeah, well, the way I look at it is I see hospice as end-of-life palliative care. And certainly hospice, according to CMS, is, you know, a benefit under the uh, Medicare title So we certainly can use all the knowledge base, all the attitudes that we have gained by taking care of hospice patients and just kind of move that forward in using that information and providing palliative care, which may itself last for two, three, four years. And then when we know that someone is in the last few months of life, and for Medicare, that means we think that someone may have six months to live or less. And if the family chooses hospice, then we go that route. But certainly we can do a lot of palliative care in all residents, whether they're on hospice or not. But hospice, I think of as end-of-life palliative care, palliative care during the last six months of life. And again, uh, for our audience who doesn't know it, the hospice care is a Medicare benefit. Every facility has to offer it, no matter how good they are at end-of-life care themselves. The benefit is there, and it's usually on that six-month time window. 
So what we've really got here, though, is that whole emerging concept of palliative care that we can apply to multiple disease states, as you've talked about, and in the nursing home, not necessarily cancer. Right. And I think separate from disease states, what we're looking at is palliating symptoms, stressful symptoms. Of course, we need to understand the pathophysiology and the etiology to these symptoms because we certainly don't want to miss any possibly curative events. For example, if someone has abdominal pain, we just don't want to treat the pain. We want to know whether they have acute appendicitis or gallbladder, whether they're in urinary retention or constipation. So it's not a question of just giving medications and other non-medication interventions to palliate symptoms that are causing pain and distress. But, so it is important to kind of appreciate that, yes, diagnoses are important, but certainly in late-stage illness, we're looking at symptoms as well. So we've got the bulk of our patients at the nursing home with uh, dementia, most likely Alzheimer's disease. And let's not talk about their disease as much as their condition, but let's talk about palliative care for this population. I think what's important uh, in any disease process, certainly dementia and Alzheimer's disease, is recognizing that they are in the late stages of disease. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, it means to me someone who is no longer ambulatory, can no longer walk, basically bedridden because of the Alzheimer's disease, not because they had an acute hip fracture six weeks ago, but also they're beginning to have life-threatening infections, whether they're being hospitalized for that or not, beginning to show progressive weight loss, which, you know, we carefully evaluate for potentially reversible causes, but we come to the conclusion that there isn't. And then we may begin to see pressure ulcers occurring that we really can't heal, but usually stage three or four. So those are kind of indicators. The other things to look for is if you do some lab, whether they're beginning to show some evidence of pre-renal failure or dehydration with the BUN creatinine going up. Also, another lab I like to look at is the albumin level. And certainly, if someone has an albumin of 2.5 or less, you know, it is our job as physicians to recognize when individuals are in the late stages of illness and advising the person themselves if they can understand or certainly the families of the prognosis and then do what we call advanced care planning. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangalos, and joining me to discuss palliative care in late-stage disease and hospice is Dr. Peter Wynn, professor in the Department of Family Medicine, Oklahoma University School of Medicine in Oklahoma City. Peter, let's now talk a little bit about perhaps some of the goals that you set and expectations you have for your staff with regard to palliative care, and then let's talk about the type of professionals that are involved in providing this care. What are the challenges to providing effective palliative care? Because, I mean, you can have quote-unquote palliative care, but unless it's effective, you're not progressing and, and providing the quality of care that you want in your facility. I looked at some of the challenges to effective pain management and long-term care. And really, you know, pain management is just one aspect of palliative care. And it actually looked at kind of the physician-related aspects, the challenges for physicians to patients and families to staff for the facility, kind of the healthcare system, and then the regulatory and the legal aspects of that. Certainly from physician point of view, I think attending physicians and hopefully the medical director will embrace palliative care it certainly is an education process. I certainly remember when I took care of my first hospice patient probably 25 years ago, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was very apprehensive about uh, using hospice in my patients, but doing geriatrics, it really just becomes uh, eventually part of that. So don't shy away from it. We certainly need physicians to continue to be engaged in taking care of residents in long-term care and receiving the education that they need to be able to proficiently do that. 
Examples might be, for example, the medical director having a physician's advisory committee or kind of an attending physician committee where he, he comes in and kind of chairs a meeting with the IDT, the interdisciplinary team, and the administrator perhaps, and goes through some of the, you know, the missions and goals actually of the facility and tries to see whether they're comfortable with paid of care and what they can do to enhance that. I want to get a little bit to hospice specifically right now. I want to talk a little bit about the eligibility for hospice. And the story that comes to mind that still bothers me is that I had one of my patients caring for them for a long, long time. And the family calls up and says, we need an emergency hospice consultation. It cut me to the quick because we had been talking about end of life for a long, long time. And I just can't buy that hospice is an emergent situation. And data would support that. We don't use hospice long enough. People are enrolled for two or three days instead of two or three months. Yes, that certainly uh, is a concern. And we do know uh, there's been a report recently released from 99 to 2006 that actually indicates that only 30 to 50 percent of patients who die in long-term care facilities actually are receiving hospice services at the time of their death. You know, I think probably the most important vital sign for me as a physician when I walk into the nursing facility is the waits. I really need to find the waits, and it, it can certainly be frustrating, whether it's in a residential care or a nursing facility or going into different facilities, because that information may be in different places, but certainly that's what I'm looking for. It's kind of what the surveyors look for in, in a sense. I'm looking for, you know, irreversible weight loss, a trend over like for 12 months, are they losing 5% of their weight in one month? Are they losing 10% in six months? And to me, those are red flags. may not necessarily mean that they're eligible for hospice, but certainly tells me that they're in their late stages of their illness. You know, functional decline, recurrent hospitalizations or recurrent ER visits. Is someone being to the ER two or three times in the last six months or being admitted to hospital two to three times in the last 12 months? That's a red flag for me to say they're probably in their advanced stage of the illness. And I th- again, I think as physicians and practitioners, it is our responsibility to recognize that these individuals are in the last stages of the illness because many times families don't even realize how advanced their illness is. And that certainly will impact the decisions and choices that they make in the future with respect to care or not. And it can be certainly very, very challenging. So the last question then is, once the physician recognizes that we're at the end of life, how do you go about sitting down with family and having them recognize the same? Yeah, I think certainly there may be a preliminary telephone call that one makes as a practitioner to the family and says, I've been seeing your mom for the last 12 months. This is what I see is going on. I am concerned. And sometimes, you know, as busy as we are, we'll say that often the communication may occur over the phone. And obviously the best way to do it is in person, but it can be difficult. And families often are waiting for the physician to initiate the conversation. Sometimes, you know, someone may not necessarily be ready for hospice uh, as far as meeting what we call the, you know, the CMS guidelines for eligibility. But I will kind of shoot a, a shot across the bow and say, you know, your mom's not doing well. I've come in and I've noticed that she's lost 10 or 12 pounds in weight. And then I will begin to go over, well, what are your preferences do you think your mom would have for care at this stage in their illness? You know, do you have a DNR for your family member? Do they have a living will? And I ask them, you know, what's your understanding of a DNR? What's your understanding of the living will? Who has the authority to make decisions? So we talk about, you know, power of attorney, which actually may be different 
than the person who's designated as the responsible party. Usually the responsible party on that face sheet of the nursing home chart is the person who's paying the bills. So you really need to find out who's making decisions and who can help you through the decision-making process. I think often staff is aware that someone's not doing well, but they don't actually bring up the topic of perhaps maybe we should consider hospice for this individual. But once you bring it up, I say, oh, yeah, we've been thinking about that already. The daughter's been in. She's talked about hospice. I think some of the challenges we also have, both coming from the point of view as a medical director, is that I think you have to be kind of in control of the situation in your nursing home. I don't want 11 different patients on hospice with 11 different hospices. And I know that families have choice. But physicians also have preference, so I'm very upfront with families and say, these are the hospices that may be coming into the facility. If I work more closely with one hospice, I tell them that, I'm very upforward with that, and I give them the choice. And sometimes there can be some difficulties uh, with staff having their preferences, families having their choices, and the physicians, so you have to be very careful about that. The other thing is you certainly want to be proficient in the hospice, and again, hospices are very forthcoming and will help you decide if someone's appropriate for hospice or not. But a couple of vignettes you've got to be careful about. I always, when I give an order for hospice consultation, I will say hospice eval provide recommendation, and it's not uncommon. All of a sudden, they've gone in and they've signed up the patient's family, and according to my opinion, they really weren't ready yet. The other aspect that I worry about sometimes is that Someone's losing weight, they've got pressure sores, stage three or four, and maybe the quality of the care being given to that individual resident in the nursing facility is not really what it should be. It should be a higher quality, and the facility is wanting you to put them on hospice so that they'll not be getting deficiencies when the next survey comes through. So you've got to be careful of what the hidden agenda may be as well and, and kind of be thinking about that as you go through the decision-making process. Another thing is I certainly think it's important to be in contact by telephone with the hospice, give them the background of the patient. And I always try, and this is difficult, once a patient's admitted to the hospice, I always tell them, I want your nurse who's doing the admission process to give me a call. Because, number one, I know the family better than they do. I know the medications. I know the the patient better. And I can really help them. And sometimes they don't do that, which is kind of unfortunate. They kind of come in, do their thing, and run away, which is not what we want to do. We want to involve all the team the patient, the family, the hospice team, and the nursing facility team together to optimize you know, the palliative care that we're going to provide. I want to thank my guests from the Oklahoma University School of Medicine, Dr. Peter Wynn. Peter, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. Great. Thanks, Eric, and I hope this will help your audience. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. From ReachMD Radio, Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA, For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.